I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. I'm Tim McIntosh. And I'm Sean Johnson. And this is Closer Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader. Nailed it. On which we are discussing... She, thanks, Sean. Shinwa Achebe's <laughs> Things Fall Apart. We're going to discuss uh, the parts two and three, the second half of the book. Um, I guess really it's like the second... The last third of the book, really. Because the, the first part is kind of the first two thirds of the book. I don't know. Don't check my math on that, but roughly. We're all back together again. It's great to great to be together uh, here in December. Just makes me feel like all is right in the in the in the I world. Know. The Christmas miracle. Are you so we're gonna do this episode then <laughs> it is a um, Christmas miracle. Then it's our QA episode, and we're gonna probably we're gonna post this episode that you're listening to. Then we're gonna post the thread, then we're gonna let some questions come in. The day we would normally run that is Christmas Day. So we're gonna record it at a different time than Christmas Day, but it's gonna go up sometime Christmas week. In the meantime, we also have our end of the year episode. And uh, by the time you'll have heard this, we have a Casablanca episode up that Heidi and Sean and I did for oh, yeah. Cultures at the Movies. Um, and we've got all kinds of all kinds of stuff going on. You'll, you'll have uh, plenty of podcasts to listen to featuring our voices while you are doing all your shopping and cooking and wrapping and, and all that, or at least enough of them. We don't want to go overboard. We don't want to you know, overwhelm. Right, take it easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Enough. I mean, you know, too, it could become too much rather quickly. So, um, but we, yeah, we're here to discuss the end of things fall apart. Before we get into that, though, Tim, what was on your Christmas list? You know, people just haven't gotten to hear from you that much. So I thought I'd just, you know, throw it out there like, what are you hoping for for Christmas this year? What did you ask Santa for? It's a good chance for people to just get to hear from you a little bit. I have made a special request. Um, I would like all warfare to stop it's a small request world peace okay. is what you want yeah 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 Mark, other people yeah. like kind of like dream small oh you know i want gingerbread cookies in my stockings i want a new pair of socks i go whole hog might as well it's christmas it's just christmas, to be clear right? do you actually yeah. want gingerbread socks? i would love ginger a gingerbread house and warm socks i would love that for listeners who are like who you know care about so me. Inclined. yeah be happy to See, provide don't a for gingerbread. <laughs> galen and i've been having this conversation like what are we gonna like what is our because it's your first christmas with a with a baby first one with a baby ah. and we're kind of trying we we are trying to not do gifts that's not going to last much longer you know um and so to be honest, I just haven't thought about gifts that much. Yeah. Aside so you're from the aforementioned getting, world peace. Are you're not getting anything for your wife for Christmas? I am. I'm gonna get her, but we've pledged we'll only get sort of small things for each other. Like like and small like diamonds size or it's a trap. Small like diamond size. No, yeah. I no, I'm gonna say this on the air because um she doesn't listen to your podcast. <laughs> I can tell you. I can tell you everything that I'm giving my wife for Christmas, and, and she, she would never know. No. <laughs> I'm getting Galen, amongst other things, Tao Tazo tea, but it's a very specific kind, glazed lemon loaf herbal tea. Oh, that's actually really oh, good. good. Yeah, that's that a really good one. Killer. Yep. She goes great with world peace and gingerbread. Loves it. Yes, it does. It does. So that's that's the. That's the only real plan I've got right now. I'm I'm efforting on some other smaller gifts, that, like diamonds. 
like diamonds. Yeah. Um, Heidi, do you know what you're getting your husband? Um, yeah. Feels like you probably plan these things in like listen. July. He also does not listen to my podcast, so I'm safe. Yeah. So I got him a couple books for we're taking a vacation right after Christmas and books that David nice. recommended about Which sports. Did, did you I go with that the 70s one? about one? the 1970s. Yeah, that book yeah. is great. Yeah. Tim, you'd love it. It's a book about how sports in the 1970s like changed everything. Oh, really? Yeah. And I got him yeah. one of those portable projectors that you can take anywhere. Oh, yeah. And, like watch movies or sports or whatever. I always that's forget I want one of those, but I want yeah. one of those. Yeah. And I got him one of those. So there's Sean's. That's <laughs> Sean's <parachutes>. request. <laughs> nice pair of shoes. What kind of shoes? Are we talking like the like Amberjack shoes? ones? Oh, nice. Yeah. Sperry Topsiders. Are you going to get him some Sperry Topsiders? I'm not above that. I really like those, but these yeah. are Do you not really? Yeah. Is your, is I your, actually just, like them for women. Does I she wear Sperry really? Topsiders? No, no. I was going to say, that doesn't seem like a Scott type no. of Not at all. Shoot. No. I used to have a pair of those and I wore hey, them on yeah. shorts. Mm-hmm. The other day I saw like a very successful businessman wearing um, like just the dopest pardon the word, but flyest uh, Jordans. And nice. he's like, you know, a middle-aged guy. And I was thinking to myself, Scott White could pull those off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. So. But he will not be pulling them off this Christmas because I got him different pair of shoes. But <laughs> maybe next time. Yeah, that's right. Are you eating avocado? I am eating chips and guacamole. This is my first bite, second bite of food I've had all day. Nice. Um, and Sounds healthy. I'm really hungry. Yeah. Yeah. We're not, it's not hungry. 10 in the morning, everybody. This is what happens. <laughs> Teachers, man, we don't eat. We don't, I, you know, the yeah, teachers the have yeah, the highest right. amount of, like the highest rate of like bladder problems. Because yeah. really, I get it. Yeah. Speaking of which, Sean, you're a teacher. You've been teaching today. Yeah. How's yeah. Your bla- like your first, how's problems. your bladder? I mean, Second, uh, how's Christmas you, coming? You kind of work out a whole schedule because it's a thing. Yep. Heidi has her mouth full, but she's nodding in ferocious it's agreement. True. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. David, I haven't told you this yet, but my family and I are going to be in Concord on December the 27th. No way. What? Yeah. Why? We're kind of passing through. We've got like half a day, uh, but we're on our way to Richmond, but we're going to be stopping through. So that is a Wednesday. I, yeah, I think that's right. Because Christmas yeah. is a Monday. That's right. Well, yeah. speaking of dope and fly things, that's going to be very fun. It's pretty dope and fly. But yeah. I'll, I'll, we'll have to, we'll have to, we should catch up a little bit. Yeah. That's Please a good idea. Say hi. Yeah. Um, but what are you getting your wife for Christmas? So, uh, does she listen? She sort of, <laughs> she, she does listen. She's always way behind, but she does eventually okay. listen. If okay. I'm lucky, she won't hear this. Oh, you know what? I think she said something like, I'm not going to listen to that one yet because I haven't read the book. So oh, okay. Perfect. Perfect then. Perfect. Uh, although she usually knows one of the things that I get her often now uh, is I have been slowly uh, building for her the the Overlook PG Woodhouse. Oh, set. yeah. Yeah, those are the uh, best. So I, and they're not that I usually easy get her, to find. Yeah, I usually get her a couple of those um, every year or every gift giving occasion. David, nice. what does Bethany have coming at her? So she has, oh, we were just talking about this. She's got some stuff from Quince coming. No free ads, but you know, Quince makes good stuff. So she's getting... Quince, it makes good stuff. Um, my mom and I are going in on... Her birthday's in January too. So I try to make her birthday not, you know, boring because <laughs> right after Christmas, those birthdays can get washed away, you know? Yeah. 
<clears throat> so she's getting a really nice winter coat because she doesn't have one of those. Um, she's getting a sweater and she's getting some really comf- nice, comfortable pants. That's what I've got so far. I'm kind of like, I'm not supposed to be doing this. We're supposed to get each other like one thing and we've got a strict budget. But my <laughs> our greatest Christmas tradition is that we set a budget and then I go way over it. Yeah. Um, that's that's like what it. I, that's like the tradition that I have with my wife yeah, for Christmas. Um, and she's not mad at you until like July and then she forgets about it again by Christmas. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we were just talking about all the kids' presents, the stuff we need to figure out for the kids, which is always like, you know, those are fun conversations. But then you're like, but is there any reason that I need all of my organs? Because this might be one of those times <laughs> to sell an organ. Um, anyway, um, yeah, I, you know, a little Christmas talk here before here. By the time this drops, it'll be December 18th, exactly one week from Christmas. So Ooh. everyone will be either very stressed or having a great time. Um, depending on your your current status. So just wanted to say, because this may be the last episode before some of you, for, for some of you that you hear before Christmas, Merry Christmas from all of us here at Close Reads. We are, um, as I say it all the time, but we're really uh, glad to be a part of this community. And thank you for participating in it. And we just wish you guys uh, a wonderful, wonderful Christmas and, uh, and a happy new year and all that. So yeah, just, yeah. Wanted, just wanted to say that. Now we are recording it a little bit earlier in December. We're recording this. It's actually December 12th today. So um, it's a little bit earlier for us. So if that shows up in the conversation for some reason, if the, if the dates don't match up with something we say over the next little bit on this episode, that's why. But, uh, but anyway, all right, let's talk about things fall apart. Um, we talked a little bit last week about the high wire acts that a Chevy is, is walking both in his narrator and in his narrative structure. I mean, not his narrator and his protagonist, because his protagonist is a difficult, he's a difficult guy. Um, he's violent. He, he has um, certain virtues, but he also certainly has a lot of vices that even, even the people in this community that he lives in, even in this culture, they still recognize it as problematic. And then we talked a little bit about how the story is very episodic and you're not exactly sure what the plot is. Um, you're not sure kind of where it's going. And I wanted to ask you guys, by the time you get to the end of it, are you satisfied with that, with the way the narrative uh, ultimately uh, ends? I, mean, I don't know what other word it is, but the way the narrative kind of comes to a conclusion. It's even hard to identify, like, what's the Danny Ma? I'm not really sure. Um, I mean, maybe it's just when Oquan hangs up. I mean, it's hard to know exactly like all the things you normally look for in story patterns and structures and all that. They're not as readily identifiable. So that got me thinking about not, and I don't ask this because I was like, man, this book really, I hated the ending, but it does make me think about the notion of being satisfied with the drama at the end of a story, which is a different question than is this a good ending or is this a good book? But did you find yourself satisfied with the end of the story? Okay. I vamped for about 45 seconds to give you guys a chance to think. (laughs) Sean, how do you feel about the the satisfaction factor? Oh, Sean just like he just grimaced when I asked him first. <laughs> but Sean, I'll tell you, you were uh, nodding and making eye contact on the Zoom call here. Uh, so never never do that. Yeah. No, I I I think I know my mind on this, at least starting out. I do find the end satisfying, but or with the with the caveat that it's not entirely plot related. Uh or at least I can't separate the plot, what seemed to be a Chevy's overarching goals 
I'll even call them maybe like political goals uh, in in writing the novel or telling the story. It is not satisfying in the way that many plots are satisfying. Like as you said, there's not uh, maybe a clear uh, climax or denouement that resolves in a in a neat or satisfying way. It's a very much a kind of gut punch, let the air out conclusion, and then it wraps up abruptly after the death of Okonkwo. But right, yeah. it it does seem to be the the note that the whole novel has been aiming at from the beginning. And I think you see that pretty clearly by the time you get to the end. So I'm satisfied in the 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 craft or the structuring of of the story in that sense. Tim, you read this, but it's been a while ago. So for you, how does it how does it land? I hesitate to say that I love the ending because it's so oh, completely man. tragic. It's not just it's like a double tragedy. Yeah. You know, um, when Macbeth is beheaded, you're like, oh man, a good man would you know was overcome by his uh whatever his, <laughs> How his you pride doing? His, his oh, shucks. <laughs> yeah um but there was a kind of like redemptive moment the kingdom was put back on its right footing and we're gonna go forward having learned something but this is kind of like a a bad man loses everything and his village is torn apart and the white colonist who come in with absolutely no attempt at understanding of the tribe that they're infiltrating basically destroy this man and they're going to we know what's going to happen to this village after the end of the book it's going to be ripped to shreds in some way or another and so it's like a failure on a personal level a conquo hangs himself after committing another murder and it's a failure on a like culture clash level nobody learns anything everything falls apart things fall apart things do so, fact yeah so all that being said i my estimation of this book increased on the second read my heart was beating out of my chest in like the last 30 pages of the book it really yeah. felt like these two indomitable forces were coming into a clash and there was no peaceful resolution and you know what there was no peaceful resolution and that's the end of our book how do you yeah. do you want to you, you no agree? i think that's right i'm with tim on this i think it's so powerful especially ending on the I mean, ending on the note of cultural appropriation and just overt racism that it does, like the narrative yeah. shifts it completely. It belittles everything that has happened. Yes. Right. And right. completely dismisses it. Things have fallen apart. And Aconquo is representative of himself and, of course, and his own culture. Like it is such a symbolic act, the hanging of, of himself and um, the the turning in, in trying to uphold his tradition, we 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 know that it's going towards a tragic end, right? I think that we can all feel that coming. They're not going to win against against the the right. the white colonists. We know that, but there is a moment when they 
when we think they're going to fight and go down in kind of a blaze of glory defending it. And instead, it's just this dishonorable end um, from within their culture and from without. And it's, I mean, it's so, like you said, Tim, it's so tragic. And it's, it's, it's an end that feels like the perfect ending in the sense that you get there and you're like surprised by it. And yet it feels inevitable from the very yes, beginning. Yes, right, right. So the big moment is Okonkwo. He hangs himself after committing that other murder. Why does he do it there? Why is it that at that that, that murder that that at that time he is he is driven to do this? Why does he, you know, he's he'd been banished for another murder and he lived he lived out that time basically grieving that he had been sent away from home and he kind of adapts and does his best and but then here at the end he ultimately he ultimately says that's enough. So why does he say that's enough? Hi, did you have thoughts on this? Oh man, I think so. I think psychologically it fits um, his sense of um, the entire novel. He's been obsessed with his own power and his own masculinity. Uh, and uh, and he's been attempting to prove to himself and to the world that he is a worthy man. Uh, and uh, And everything he does is motivated by that. And there's a compelling psychological reason we're given for that in in part one, uh, and he lives that out in every way. That's both that both elevates himself and becomes self destructive. We see that over and over again in his life. Um, and uh, but and then we're told in part two that there's two kinds of crimes, right? A masculine crime and a feminine crime. And the first crime he committed was a feminine one because it was unintentional. But here he commits the masculine crime by murdering the messenger uh and um and that that's complicated right there uh like a very complex moment uh in his identity right uh but the the penalty of it is much worse and uh and so then he just completely um annihilates himself right why right at the moment when he's at you could argue that it's this nexus of ultimate masculinity, right? Right when he's, in a sense, and I'm using air quotes here, achieved a, the full measure of masculinity, which he's been obsessed with this whole life. And he's been but, hoping that they would do it. Yes. They would fight back. Right. And then, uh, but that, but that becomes this self-destructive act that results in then in him not only emasculating, but annihilating himself. Uh, and with it, his how his embodiment, like the Aconquil embodiment of his entire culture, is also self destructing and being attacked from the outside. Um, yeah. It's been I destroyed think, outwardly and inwardly in that act. Yeah, Go I ahead, think John. that's I think that's why he does it. I think that, uh, and Heidi, you said this early on in your comment. He he understands the masculine ideal in the context of his culture. And so every time he does something that he thinks is going to establish him as this uh, prominent, recognized, masculine figure, he's trying to step into a, a position or a role that has been provided and outlined by that traditional culture. And in committing the murder, he thinks that he is doing that. This is it. I'm striking a blow for everything that we hold dear and that this is going to you know ignite the the fire 
uh, that will lead everyone to glory. Uh, and instead, enough of that culture has broken down and disappeared uh, that he doesn't even find it there to step into anymore. Right? He he comes back to his village and uh, it's the wrong it's the wrong time in the cycle of years to enroll his uh, sons in the you know honor guild and uh, he when it comes time to fight for the traditions that they value, uh, no one else is willing to do it, even after he takes the uh, extreme first step of shedding blood. Uh, and so I think that uh, he doesn't believe so much that he's annihilating his culture as that he's found it already annihilated and that he has no context for existence anymore. Right? It's it's just utter despair. And there's no room for what he did. Like what he did is so, it made so much sense. But right. his culture is so... Uh, it his culture is so complete in itself. It doesn't have room for the colonial takeover, right. right? And so then, in trying to be heroic, he ends up putting himself outside of it. That's right. And yep. there's no answer for that. Uh, there's there's no room for that. There's no remedy for that. And so, to him, to to ultimately to annihilate himself was mm. the was both the most understandable and the least understandable next step. Yeah. You guys, I have a crazy idea that I want to throw out. Yeah. Um, That's why we, that's one of the reasons we like to get you back on because can always count on it. I have crazy ideas. They're usually bad, but maybe this one will be different. Crazy like Fox. Okay. Here's, here's the, here's the question. I have two questions and that will lead me to my thesis. Why does our author put forward Aconquo is his main character. Aconquo is, I mean, in so many ways, he's respected as this mighty warrior, but in every other way, he's not respected. Uh, he's only partly respected by the elders of the village. He's hot-headed. He's prone he's to He's a liability. Anger. He's a liability, <laughs> right? Okay. Now, is his antithesis the white man... Reverend Smith, who in his own way is the same as Conquo. The first, that's he the first one or the second the one? Second one. That's the, the second, second one. Okay. He replaces Smith, replaces Brown. That's right. Brown is this moderating figure. Brown, um, he seems like he's wise, he's compassionate, he's respectful of local traditions. Of course, he is a Christian missionary and he has like, um, strong convictions that can't align, won't align with the kind of um, polytheism that's practiced by the tribes. But he reaches out. He's in conversation with elders. He even tries to have a conversation with a conquo. And, when, and for me, here's the big question. If Reverend Smith, sorry, if, if Reverend Brown, the moderating Reverend, the first Reverend, had not gotten sick, is there a possibility that this dual relationship could have survived? That a church could have been nearby the village, that it could have had Christian believers leaving the village, being part of this new Christian community, while the village itself in some ways continues its traditions. And the two, maybe not easily, probably not peacefully, but they coexist in some way. 
But what we get is at the end, the battle is kind of between Reverend Smith, who's like the war reverend, everything, what's the quote? He sees everything in black and white and black is evil, right? That's Reverend Smith. And Aconquo, in a way, I don't know that Aconquo is driven, um, how do I say this? Aconquo wants to drive out the white man because the white man doesn't understand. To protect the borders, to not prote- to Yeah, that's right. Them. Yeah, that's it's right. It's not a colonial vision. Right. It's not a colonial vision. So here's my, here's my crazy idea. What if Achebe's real goal was to show maybe what might have been and what instead happened. And I, and I don't want to propose in any way that a Chevy is like, yeah, just a couple of missteps. And um, that's the only thing that went wrong with like the European imperialistic drive in Africa. It was just a couple of missteps. I'm not proposing that at all. I'm just localizing it to this particular village. There was a way, there was wisdom on both sides of the rift. And if wisdom had been practiced, if moderation had been practiced, then I think there was the possibility of some sort of peaceful, whatever, cohabitation. I don't think that's crazy at all. I think no, that that's, that's I think that's right because Ashebi didn't have to write Brown into the story. Right, right. right? Yeah. Like, yeah. And Brown is literally a like a middle ground between black and white right like (laughs) um and so there is he is a moderating force like kind of like shoved in our face right it's very on the nose his presence in the story is um and it's with the uh the entrance of smith uh and also the civil it's the district commissioner it's it's not yes yeah right yeah yeah right so it's that the, the colonial vision is not limited um, to a, a religious vision here. Like yeah. it's expanded, right? And it's that yeah. it's at that point when um, yeah. that that level of colonialism was what becomes so destructive. Before it was threatening, and then it becomes destructive. And yeah, I I, well, I thought of uh, when reading this the second and third part this time around, and then Tim. Uh, even more so when you were saying that, uh, I thought a lot about "Cry the Beloved Country." You all have you all read this? You know, this I've novel? never read it. That's like one of your mom's favorite books, right, David? Yeah, it's a beautiful. Book. Yeah, sorry, sorry, Sean. Yeah, no, and and it's um, it's also. I mean, it's written by a white South African, but it's also uh, one of these novels that I think succeeds at uh, portraying the the plight of the African in the face of. Uh, you know, the aftermath of colonialism. I mean, it's, it's set uh, really on the eve of apartheid, mm. uh, but, but in a realistic and sympathetic way, not as a, you know, it doesn't caricature uh, the South African natives or, uh, you know, it's not a, looking at them through a racist lens. Uh, but there, uh, uh, Patton seems to, he, he also separates out these three groups. He has the native traditional culture. There's the life of the village that is kind of dying. Uh, and then there's the, the church. And then there's the city, like the, the, the established foothold or the uh, uh, center of 
what has become the colonial experience uh, that is really at odds with both the church and the traditional culture. Mm. Uh, in fact, the main character in most of the novel is is a a black priest, mm. uh, right? So a kind of marriage of the two in conflict, uh, or representing both in conflict with uh, what really ends up being the the down the road result mm. of colonialism. I was, and it, it seems like it seems like that is a possible alternative framework here. Yeah, and so that that book has got kind of like a like a moderating drive as a kind of counterpoint to like what ended up happening in South Africa. Is Am I hearing you right, Sean? Yeah, I think that's right. I was actually, I was very surprised. I was not prepared for the degree to which uh, Brown's presentation of Christianity was actually very, I don't know what the word is, like positively portrayed. Yeah, <laughs> I wasn't. Yeah. I was expecting it to be a little more like the, especially after you not having read it before, and you mentioning, oh, there's this priest character coming, and and having heard enough stories about, you know, what the the things that the church is that the church has done, you know, that are pretty harmful. Um, so I was expecting more like the church to be the enemy, especially um. At the beginning, but Brown, the presentation of Brown's faith and his and and his presentation of the faith is pretty positive, and and like then you have and you like even in Y's um a, appreciation for yeah. his conversion, his yeah. his immediate like it doesn't describe his immediate response to it in a negative way. It makes it very positive. The fact that he has something is awakened in him and the book presents that as a positive thing. It doesn't, or at least a neutral thing. So it doesn't really put these two religions in conflict with one another and then choose a side. It suggests that they're different. Smith heightens the drama of it a little bit by being a different yeah. kind of personality, but it's oh, his it's relationship with the district commissioner that drives it towards violence and drives right. it towards conflict. And then that's why it's so important that the end of the book, the final chapter is in the POV loosely of the district commissioner. And he's the one that's going to write this really racist book. It's like the civil concerns of the colonizers create a degree of, of um, conflict and dissonance that the two, that, that the, the two religions that, that, that caused the two religions to be more at odds with one another than they would ordinarily have been or were previously. And I was not prepared for the degree to which it was, it was presented as, you know, like as like a, at least a pre positive vision for the world. Yeah. And even, even the points of conflict under Brown are things that I, we would probably all agree are objectively in the favor of Christianity, right? They, uh, they restore the ostracized. They save the lives of the infants who are exposed in the jungle. Uh, that makes some people grumpy in the village, but those are all pretty good things. So, Tim, you you pose this question though, like, are you, and Heidi just you you agree with what he's saying? Then mm -hmm. I do. You, Tim, you presented it like maybe you were unsure though about your own well, theory, I, so to. I mean, I th I think the public conversation about the effects of colonialism are that it is uniformly bad, 100% destructive, 
And I don't think that there is much of a moderate position. And I think that that's a shame because I'm going to go a little bit just for a second political. I know we try to stay away from it on this um, podcast, but I think this is like very <laughs> relevant to this show. There was a study that was published 10 years ago by a, an academic named Robert Woodbury. I think he was at the University of Singapore. And he kind of studied the roots of democracy. What were the things that helped shape liberal democracy in developing countries? And this is a huge question, right? And he like did all the work and the thing that he kept finding, I mean, this is, I think to our audience, this is not going to be terribly controversial, but I think to other audiences, this would be insanely controversial. The thing that he kept finding over and over and over that led in developing countries to economic development, increases in health, lower infant mortality rates, lower rates of corruption, greater literacy rates, higher rates of, educa higher rates of educational attain attainment, especially for women and the birth and growth of women's rights. The number one thing is Protestant missionaries, Protestant conversionary ministry, missionaries. It's a thing that he found over and over and over as the single largest factor in ensuring the health of nations. And you're like, wait, how does that reconcile with the kind of story of colonial imperialism that I think is kind of like the dominant narrative? Um, it's hard to know how to reconcile those two things because I read this book and I see what happens at the end and I'm like, yeah, it's so destructive when these cultures clash and when somebody like Mr. Smith shows up with his kind of like blinkered way of doing things and when his administrator shows up with his blinkered way of doing things and they mow down this village sort of like ideologically, militarily, legally, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I, I mm -hmm. completely buy that story, but I do think there is a kind of lesser told story, which is it's the story of Mr. Brown. That is not a story that we hear very often, but that is a very, very real story. Hmm. Does, that, does that make sense what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the this book makes the same distinction that you're asking for. There is a distinction that's actually not subtle. It's not a subtle one. It's just an ignored one right now. There's a <laughs> distinction between yes, right, mission right. work and colonialism. Those are right. two different things. Right. They're two different things. Now, they often went together, um, but it happened, it, yeah. as Xinhua Shebi is Economically pointing out here. Yes, yeah. like it It happened, as, as a Shebi is pointing out here, usually the missionaries came first and the colonialism came second. Yeah. Uh, but there was a very racist idea in the in the 19th century about like the white man's burden. And so you bring religion and you bring civilization to the savages, right? Um, and fix their culture and make that and make it all better. Um, and, uh, and, and that was wrong. And Ashebi is pointing that out. Uh, but as as you're saying, like the distinction between colonialism and mission work is, is not a, it's, they don't go together. They're two separate, different things. Yeah. Um, and, and that, and I think that Ashebi is very honoring to that. Um, the second thing is that uh, one of the, 
one of the things that he's continually bringing us back to uh, in this book, which is very mm-hmm. subtle. Like it's just, this is such a beautiful book. Like this is such a, such a beautiful book. And it's very nuanced um, in that it acknowledges the full weight of the devastation of colonialism. Things are falling apart. Right. Um, and also the goodness that it did bring, uh, especially to someone like Nuoye, right. Um, who has lost his his father is continually disappointed in him and he finds something in the church that brings him to life again. Um, and the, and the rescue of the infants, all the things that you were already pointing Absolutely. out, like there's yeah. goodness that came that a Chevy acknowledges. Yeah. Right. And then on the other side, along with that goodness, even with the goodness, there comes a profound loss. Right. Um, and on, on page 203, he talks about um, there when they're debating what to do about the incoming colonials. There's this speech there. You know why we are? It says Okika sprang to his feet and saluted his clansmen four times. Then he began to speak. You all know why we are here when we ought to be building our barns or mending our huts when we should be putting our compounds in order, right? And then he goes on to say all the things that they're all the goodness of their culture that they're not able to engage in because they're having they they have to deal with this threat. And so there's just these multiple layers of subtlety, uh, the impact that it makes in, uh, as we talked about last time, there's these good things in the culture, uh, in spite of all the savage and bad things, right? And then there's, and all these like hard and violent things, there's also this goodness. And when that, when, when that violence is tempered, they also lose the good things within the culture. Like the things are truly falling apart. Like the center cannot hold. Uh, and everything's kind of splintering and fragmenting because it was all of a piece, right? And and so if you take out one, you know, of the Jenga blocks, the whole thing falls down. And I think he is lamenting that, but also lamenting it with the with with the knowledge that there's some things about it that are worth losing, but not everything. What do we do about that? Yeah. 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 He me, even, so you, oh, go ahead, Tim. No, you go ahead, Sean. Oh, I was just going to say that. I, I think that's, I think that's, you nailed it. I think that's right. Uh, I, I even struck me that when he talks about the early encounters between the, the villagers and the Christians, uh, he uses words, right? We, we acknowledged in part one, how journalistic and objective his narrative was. Uh, in that part two, he uses words like silent and dusty to describe the hearts of uh, the men who are hearing the the hymns for the first time or the parched soul of the man into, into which the, the, you know, the hymn pours. Uh, I think he recognizes something, yeah, that is truly needful in that in that context. Uh, but yeah, it, it ends up coming at yeah. A painful price, and I'm, and I'm curious too uh, that maybe we can talk about this, uh, Tim. After, after uh, you you say what you have to say, um, but I'm a little fuzzy on Shebi's own biography. But I think that he is the son of missionaries. Is that right? Native missionaries. I don't Do know. You know. I very Dang. deliberately stayed away from any criticism or any biography. Sure, David and I are on it right now. <laughs> okay, I tried not to find out a lot about him, but I think that I have gleaned that at some point. Uh, 
So we can we can come back to that maybe. I found another time the section about the forgive me. It's not the untouchables, but this group of men who were just come, yeah. The, yeah, the long haired, the constant, the totally. committed to the gods guys. They were yeah. cast out. You're right, Sean. By the way, yep, Nigerian oh, yeah. Christians. They were cast out. They were like their hair was bedraggled. They were totally unkempt, and they were oh, and their alone. children's children were yes, all- <laughs> yes, yeah. they were alone. It was a curse yeah. for their whole life. It was. I mean, it made me cry. I was like, "There's yeah. no home for them. They're not allowed ever to like." join human community of any type and the church said yes this is like the whole thing is we say yes <laughs> they belong and i i found that to be completely inspiring i just thought it was so 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 beautiful and it contributed to the tragedy of the end of the book because there is this picture of what could be that 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 change yeah. could take place that some maybe update to the traditions would be possible maybe um because of the kind of like the influence the spiritual influence of the church kind of on the outer rim of the village it, it was so hopeful but you also knew like this can't last. It just, it can't last. It, yeah. So it, man, I think this book is a, a, a complete masterwork, a total masterwork. And it's heartbreaking at the end. It's so heartbreaking. No. Um, but it shouldn't distract us in my opinion from recognizing my gosh, this book is a triumph, a total triumph. And it's such an understated. Yes. Yes. Subtle triumph i mean it's you you don't see like you don't see the brushstrokes yeah. but it's yeah it's brilliant yeah it really is i the only biographical information i saw is like i wanted to know if he was still alive and he died 10 years ago mm. yeah yeah anyway. that's right yeah he lived from 1930 to 2013 but he was the children of missionaries and his bio continually if you like if you just wikipedia bio bio mentions uh, many times in here that he stands at the intersection of traditional culture and Christianity, basically. Um, Man, how many people occupy that space? (laughs) You're right. Like not many. It it makes his, I mean, he died. It sounds like full of years, but it still like makes his death, like really, especially tragic because who occupies that space? Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's, it's instructive too, right? That, his approach for people, you know, even in America who are Christians living in a, at the, in a, at times when Christianity seems at odds with the culture, there's like a, there's a charitableness to it, but also, I mean, it's a very different, very different thing, but also, a, you know, you know, there's also a, a sense of the, the life-giving aspects of it. He's not, yeah. he, but he's not, he does, it's not, what I'm trying to say is he's not writing a sermon. Right. right. This is not a, a novel that is just about the ideas it's it's still wrapped up in in the place and the people and it's not a diatribe or you know mm-hmm. like heavy-handed or any of the things that you normally get out of a book that's just trying to make a point um it's too it's too like i mean you guys use the word subtle i'm not even sure what point this book is making right like it's such 
it's such a tragedy. I'm not sure I could extrapolate a moral from it. Yeah, like it's it just was. trying to get yeah. you to yeah. weep yeah. over the death of a yeah. complicated it's like a man. lament. Yeah. yeah. And in the culture that he represents, and to see in order to mourn for the culture, you have to see its goodness. Uh-huh. But uh-huh. in order to and and we do, but in on on the other side, in order to mourn for the culture, you also have to see its complexity. You have to see it as fully human. Um, not idealized. And he also does that. Um, And he also doesn't, I mean, we do have the church as complicated as well. We have it presented as nuanced and the impact of Mm -hmm. it and what it did um, to the culture and for the culture. And, and that's just, man, it's just so it's, it's great. Yeah. You mentioned that section there at the end, Heidi where Okika springs to his feet mm. and, and gives that speech. And I wanted to ask a couple of questions about that because it's a pretty crucial moment, obviously. Um, can can I read this page? And then I want to, because it happens right before Okwankwo chops the guy's head off and, and then, you know, commits suicide. Because this is like immediately right after that, the, after this speech that happens. So this is where quickly. this yeah. is what you are reading, Heidi. Um, then he began to speak. You all know why we are here. When we ought to be building our barns or mending our huts. When we should be putting our compounds in order. My father used to say to me, "Whenever you see a toad jumping in broad daylight, then know that something is after its life." When I saw you all pouring into this meeting from all the quarters of our clan so early in the morning, I knew that something was after our life. He paused for a brief moment and then began again. All our gods are weeping. Idemili is weeping, Ogwugwu is weeping, Agbala is weeping, and all the others. Our dead fathers are weeping because of the shameful sacrilege they are suffering and the abomination we have all seen with our eyes. He stopped again to study his trembling voice. This is a great gathering. No clan can boast of greater numbers or greater valor. But are we all here? I ask you, are all the sons of Umu Ophia with us here? A deep murmur swept through the crowd. They are not, he said. They have broken the clan and gone their ways. We who are here this morning have remained true to our fathers, but our brothers have deserted us and joined a stranger to to soil their fatherland. If we fight the stranger, we shall hit our brothers and perhaps shed the blood of a clansman, but we must do it. Our fathers have never dreamed of such a thing. They never killed their brothers, but a white man never came to them. So we must do what our fathers would never have done. Aniki the bird was asked why he was always in the wing, and he replied, Men have learned to shoot without missing their mark, and I have learned to fly without perching on a twig. We must root out this evil, and if our brothers take the side of evil, we must root them out too, and we must do it now. We must bail this water now that it is only ankle deep. At this point, there was a sudden stir in the crowd, and every eye was turned in one direction. Um, the messengers then come. Okwankwo, who was sitting at the edge, he springs to his feet. They kind of confront one another. Um, he, um, he chops the guy's head off and then wipes his machete on the sand and, and, and goes away. So Heidi, you were talking about this speech, you know, I, this is a really complicated speech here because on the one hand, he's basically saying our people have left to join the Christians and the colonialists and they, we have, we have no choice now. And on the other hand, the book has also presented a more nuanced approach 
And so these people are feeling like they've been driven to to action. And it's as if Okwankwo has been inspired by the speech to take to do what he does. So the timing of it works out dramatically. And but I'd lo- I want to dig into this a little because Heidi, in particular, like how do you read the the tone of this speech or the way the book feels about the speech, particularly with you know in connection with the comments that you you made earlier, where you were saying, you know, there's there's this mourning for something that was lost mm-hmm. for this culture that was lost. And then in the end, he's basically saying, oh, this culture was lost and we have to do something about it yeah. now. And that thing we have to do is violence. Right. So that, that's it's something we call to action along mm-hmm. with the lament. So the lament is one thing, but then this call to action, how do you think the book, I don't know, this isn't I think that like the making book, commentary on it, but. Right. I think the book wants us to feel um, very sympathetic to the Klansmen, right? Because right before then, They had been dishonored when they went uh, in good faith to the courthouse to try to resolve the issues. The district commissioner is a yes, and then (laughs) they were, and then they were so dishonored uh, and disrespected uh, when they had gone in good faith, and and then this is their response. And Okonkwo at the beginning of this chapter is it says that he's almost happy for the first time in a long time because he's so looking forward to actually taking action. Um, And he thinks like this is the right moment for them to stand up. And you see that he's ready for like a blaze of glory and self-sacrifice. He knows they might not win and probably won't because the white men are superior in numbers, but he hopes he has hope uh, that, that he, that the best of him can come out, right. The courageous heroic side that, that, that defends what he, his way of life and his family, um, in, in the face of this oppression and, uh, and dishonor. And, um, and so we, I think are supposed to be stirred by this and, 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 and sympathetic, uh, and to really understand the depth of the betrayal of the colonialists of this culture. Uh, and, and I do, like, I feel that when I'm reading this. Um, and then the twist, of course, is Okonkwo's mur- is the murder. I don't even think that's the real twist. I think the real twist is the response of everyone looking on. Oh, yeah, go on. Because, I like that. You changed my because, mind already. Well, I mean, the, <laughs> the, the tone and the content of the speech, I think, is is stirring and it's meant to There's be. There's a we few, and, we happy few thing yeah. about. Uh, let's roll these jokers. We and, band of brothers. <laughs> and when the machete comes out, isn't the surprising part. You're like, oh yeah, of course, here it is. You know, and the crowd's going to go wild and they're going to storm the compound. Uh, it's when there is a hush and the there is not the explosion of zeal and fervor that is triggered by his action instead they are afraid and they are shocked and they ask why did he do it uh that's i think for him and and even for the reader if you're sort of keyed into the emotion of the scene that's the real twist and surprise he was the only one prepared to do anything yeah right and and they even let the other guys go do what the orators were uh you know urging them to do we have to shed blood now uh, it wasn't it wasn't a moderating speech that was uh, being given. Hmm. Poor guy. You're, Heidi's convinced. Yep. As soon as I said it, I was like, that's not right. It isn't the that's not the twist. That's the natural, inevitable thing. Yeah. It's it 
Yeah. And this is the worst moment of, or part of a long series of worst moments from the white colonialists. Yeah. Um, and what they do here is so frustrating, right? Because right when we're getting stirred up, here they come in with their bureaucracy and their complete misunderstanding and their power trips and they're shutting everything down. And and then Okonkwo does what he thinks is heroic and then is shamed for it by his own people. Mm. And that feels like... By the white men. That's the moment too when the perspective shifts. He wipes his... That's the last time we get him as our driving narrative force. It's the last time we see him alive. Right, yeah. Yeah, So then it's a a very like smart thing here that Shebi does where he basically switches the last chapter to the district commissioner because Okonkwo couldn't... If he's dead, he couldn't... It's like a signal that there's a shift. He couldn't have known what's happening. Uh, yeah. But it also allows Chevy to kind of wrap the story up thematically and and kind of point us towards what the book is, you know, all ultimately trying to say. But it seems like he, I asked earlier, you know, why does he finally kill himself here? It's like, I think that's to the point that he realizes that no one else is going to join him. There is no war to be had. So his purpose is, is gone. You know, he, he would have much preferred to die in battle. He's been trying to die in battle for since he was a kid, essentially. And now that he's taken, he 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 took a he took a swing and he he thought he started what he did what he thought was gonna start the war. He thought he was firing the shots that would that would be heard around the world, and instead it was there was no there was no bang, it was a whimper. And so then And it is truly sad because uh, even if the alternative uh that Tim has described were to come to pass in this in this place, there's still really no place for Okonkwo. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even his death, he can't his body can't be physically touched by his fellow vis- visitors. His people, his yeah. Fellow, they need a stranger. Yeah. And so in death, he's an outcast. You know, he doesn't he won't lie with his fathers. And it's I mean, it's just, it's awful. It's such a, I, I find myself saying it's so awful. It's so tragic. It's so hard. It's brilliant. You know, I find myself <laughs> saying that over yes. and over and over again. Because you know, I just, I'm sorry, David, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I, would, I just wanted to question about that. Go ahead, but you're going to say that. Oh, I just, it just occurred to me for the first time while you were talking, the two of you just right now is that this moment is so important that it, he need. It's brilliant. It's brilliant, like you just said to him, because it's it's Okonkwo's suicide that highlights the most tragic parts of both cultures. Right, the yeah. fact that this yeah. man who who lost everything cannot be received mm-hmm. in death by his own culture, and that situation was created by these selfish racist colonials right and so both of the essentially frankly both of the worst parts of of these competing forces have both caused this and are embodied in this suicide Oft end pass to you, David. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Well, I was gonna well, further commentary. I was, just, I, w- <laughs> I was just thinking. I was just thinking about what you said. Uh, what I was gonna say a second ago is just, do you, Tim, you were saying it's it's awful and brilliant. 
I I would almost say it's there's a there's a it's tragic, but I would say there's also beauty to it, like in terms of the storytelling, like it's beautifully told and it's beautifully rendered, like the best tragedies are. But would you say would you say this is how was this dark? Is it a dark book? Because that's one of the the words that's been used to kind of describe it on social media, and um, and I don't mean to I don't ask this as a way of saying hey let's argue with people who have described the book as dark as they were reading it, um, but I just I'm just I've been wrestling with that myself. It's very difficult, mm-hmm. and it's very sad, um, but it's also I find it to be a really beautiful book. Oh man, um, no and doubt. So, yeah. I don't know that I personally would describe it as dark, and. But maybe it's just a matter of like semantics, and you know well, no, I like my the dad said about semantics, right? <laughs> yeah, I like difficult better than dark. When I hear dark, I hear mood. It's dark. Yeah. It like yeah. It gets into kind of like shadowy places in the human psyche or something like that. And for yeah, sure, Fight Club is dark. Fight Club is dark. <laughs> but this this is I wouldn't use that word for this. Because of course it gets into like shadowy places of a conquo and well, every novel gets into shadowy places of the heart, but yeah, yeah, good. But but it's not just like an atmospheric mood dark, it's like a profound culture in irreparable doing irreparable harm, you know, to itself and others and being done irreparable harm by others. It's it's a Full on galactic conflict, and I think yeah. when I hear, for me, dark sounds a little bit too light for that, a little bit too yeah. <laughs> unweighty for that. To me, like when I hear dark, I think of it as being more about the that tone or that mood or the wading into the darkness of the human soul for the sake of wading into the darkness of the human soul, yeah. just for kind of its own sake and kind of lingering there. And I don't think this book does that. I think there's way too much. Um, that's also not about the darkness of the human soul, that there's also like, like about what it means to be alive. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the flourishing, like it's got too many questions about what it means to flourish as a human soul to be truly dark, in my opinion. Heidi, what do you yeah. think? Yeah, I just, I guess I'd probably want to know what, that what we mean by means. dark, yeah. right? Like if it, if what they mean is that it's tragic and hard to read in some places and, um, highlights things that humans are capable of and do to one another or feel deeply that are um, just like profoundly um, distressing or cause a lot of wrestling. I think, yeah, but in terms of, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't personally describe this book as dark, but I would describe it as tragic, as sad, as hard to read. Um, but I would pretty much hand this book to literally anybody. And I think a truly dark book has like a, an audience that should be limited, right? Um, but like, I think this book, everybody should read it. I was but trying to as young think, as I did. I read it in high school. I didn't remember it. I did not get it. So it's anyways, an adult book, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. It's an I, don't, adult I do book. not understand. I don't understand the, the giving it to teenagers, but I do love it. Can you guys think of a book? this book is more than just about like colonialism and like European imperialism. I'm going to, we're all going to just grant that. However, it does squarely address those issues, which are exceptionally complicated. I mean, exceptionally complicated to discuss. Um, Can you guys think of another book that addresses 
an issue as complex as colonialism, European imperialism, with the sort of like dexterity and felicity of this book. You know, just like, that's what I think about this book above maybe everything else is it is so dexterous. It has such great capacity to address these intricate, nuanced, and highly politicized issue with like this real grace and like profound insight and understanding. And I've just been trying to think of like what other books that we've done on this show or not done on this show um, do the same thing. Hmm. I don't know. It's a great question. Death Comes for the Archbishop is kind of about yeah colonialism in its own way. Yeah, that's true. And so is some of Graham Greene's work. Cry the true, Beloved yeah, Country, I, didn't, I, didn't think I think. Yeah, Cry. Is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which we haven't done on the show. But the, Things Fall Apart is a stronger novel. But it, it uh, yeah, does okay. take on some of the same questions with the same level of compassion, hmm. I think. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. I've heard that um um what is it called? What is her name? Um Homecoming, Homegoing by uh is it Yajiasi oh, from right. a couple years ago? Yeah, I haven't read it. I've heard really good things about that one, so I haven't read it either. I think some of our listeners have even read it and said huh. that it kind of fits in this category. Um, but I haven't you know, I've heard it described as a as a sort of kin to things fall apart. Hmm. Um but it does make me want to, and maybe this is another thing he was after. It makes me want to read more about it. It makes me want to, to think about it. Um, but you know, you wait. Sometimes you wait into these books, and they do become so political that you feel like you're not really able to wrestle with the ideas. If if the if a book's too one sided, the ideas become you know you know wrestle with them. Propaganda, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. That's not. There's nothing like that. Not a not a hint of that in this yeah. book. Which, to your point, Tim, is incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me ask you. Um, let me ask you this before we go. Uh, we will have our Q and A episode next. So if you if we didn't talk about something that you are, you know, rearing and I don't know, ready to hear us talk about. I don't know. The metaphor didn't really didn't really work once I started it. But we're rearing. Logan can fix it, but he won't. Um, so, is there a, a favorite? Boy what's your, there? Yeah, 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 yeah. We should start asking for Withy Wendell sound effects on the show. <laughs> um, side effect, side side note: I asked for a sound effect in one of those episodes of a uh, like a squishy hug. It was like Wet Jim, the character Wet Jim on Withy Wendell was giving a hug, and it's the funniest sound effect that Logan dropped in of people that are wet soaking soaked through hugging it it's both hilarious and, and gross okay so anyway um do you have a favorite moment in this book like what will you most be thinking about mm. when it when you know in six months when you think back to this book i mean I, how can you predict that but try try to predict like what do you think will um linger with you the most for me there's the end certainly there's the the moment where he wipes the so well written where he wipes the his machete in the sand and then leaves and that's the last we see of him um but i also think that the the moment where he which it kind of mirrors this the moment where he also kills the sort of adopted son because oh, the man. culture that's, yeah. it's time for him to die the community says that that will and then also the um some of the moments that he has with his daughter, the one who he's always saying he wishes she was a boy there's some that connection yes. there is very it's so human. And 
she it brings her alive in a way, even though she's not not in the the book as much as it seems like based on the way her spirit kind of her character spirit sort of lingers over it. Sean, do you have a moment? One of my favorite moments is when Okonkwo feasts his mother's family before he leaves. Oh, for at the end of the uh, seven years. Yeah. That he, I mean, he himself is just full of hope and that, that warmth of his own looking forward transfers to these people that he's been off and on kind of ambivalent about. Uh, and, you know, they tell him, you, you are such, uh, such and such a man that we expected a, a big feast, but you have, you have uh, exceeded even our expectations in your generosity. And it's just a really sweet, full, you know, uh, magnanimous moment. It's his best uh, moment. Is, it's like his highest. Yeah, that's right. His most right. human moment. Like yep. when you go to eat at the White House, you say, I knew this was going to be a feast. <laughs> but this is above and beyond. I have some more wine. Exactly. And, then, <laughs> and then, you say, then you say, hey, Scott, those are great Sperry Top sliders. I love yeah. those Sperry Top sliders. Great Jordans, yeah. Well, as Scott, is a Scott that says, uh, if you're going to be a bear, be a grizzly. Be a grizzly. That's right. Yeah. 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 Heidi, what about you? You got a moment? Um, I I really like that moment. I think it's the first moment in the book that really humanized him for me because I really had a hard time with him at the beginning because of the way he treat treated his family. Um yeah. and like I, I had a it took me longer, I think, to like make room make room charitableness wise to have like charity <laughs> on him. Um because of the way he talked to his family and his and how he terrorized them and and they were yeah. afraid of him. But when he follows the prophetess when she's carrying Enzima yeah. on her back and and then he follows his wife and um like it's this moment when I'm like, oh, he when I saw him as a father and a husband that had some some goodness in his heart towards his family instead of just terrorizing them. Like I remember that. I just kind of have this vision of him in the darkness with the machete with those like hands crossed over his chest, like ready to protect his daughter and his wife. And they didn't even know he was there. He was like this guardian of the, for them. And that, that I, I liked that. I think I have that in my head when I think of him. And then the, um, and then when his friend Okira defends him and and lashes out against um the district commissioner and blames him for um for Okonko's death uh as I just thought that moment was really great too yeah that that character kind of yeah comes alive gradually becomes more and more complex and compelling Mm -hmm. as the story goes along Tim what about you the killing of the adopted son is so I mean, I'm with Sean. It's just so heartbreaking. It's hard to forget. I kind of want to forget. And I think like, um, I, I wish there was another name other than Untouchables that's more, mm-hmm. that's a different culture. But um, when they're like, when the priest adamantly accepts them and like gives them haircuts and shaves them, they like join the human community. I I just think... It made me so proud. Maybe, yeah, I just love that moment. David, did you say yours? Yeah, I did. Because I did. asked the question yeah. and then I said it well yep. to give you guys a chance to think. You yep. know, I, I think that the 
that tip that mentioned that that the moment that you just mentioned, Tim, is um, there's such a contrast between the Brown and Smiths, yeah, interactions with them. There's a couple of key moments that con that that like show the difference that I think is really really important. Going back to our earlier conversation, so those would be some other some moments to look really closely at. Um, maybe something I might do that between now and the next episode because they're not like these long these moments aren't really long, but it doesn't he he can he's so precise in his writing so he can capture these these differences and these contrasts between these different kinds of relationships and different kinds of actions and he doesn't need to do it over the course of many many pages and you know how much i like precision in a novel so i appreciate that about him um okay any final thoughts before we go we're going to do the q and a next week as a, or as a, well maybe it won't be next monday it'll be sometime during christmas between christmas and new years but they'll be coming Heidi, anything? No, I just uh, really loved reading this book. Sean, I'm in the same boat. I would just be effusive about it. It's, it's yeah, lovely, enjoyable. Tim, I'm looking forward to the Q and A, David. Me too. Me too. Not ready to let the I'm book a- go. Q and A is an opportunity to just <laughs> hold on just a little bit longer. That's yeah. right. We'll also get to hold on to you a little bit longer, Tim. One more week. Don't make it sound like it's forever. No, 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 no. it's not forever. It's <laughs> and then, just, you know, all the weeks to come after and that. And all the weeks to come after that. Um, so speaking of all the weeks to come after that, we are going to begin January with Summer Lightning, the PGA Woodhouse book. I think enough people have Let's it go. or can get it. So we're going to start the year with something light and bright and not dark. Uh, comic. Um, so we're going to, that's a Blandings novel. So those of you who have only read Woodhouse and read Jeeves and Wooster, those Beautiful are incredible. Tree. But the Blandings novels are wonderful too in their own way. So we're going to do yeah. that. And I'll have the full schedule. By the time you listen to this, you probably will have the, the full schedule for at least the first three to four months of 2024. Um, don't forget, we're reading through Christian Lavern's Daughter over on the bonus show. We also are going to have, I'm um, setting in January, we're going to have uh, uh, some mysteries. We're going to be doing Strong Poison by Dorothy Sayers as our first mystery novel in January. So there is a lot of great bonus content. Um, and I just you know want to put a little plug here if you're, you got a close reads listener friend, you know, maybe they're uh, looking for a Christmas gift idea over the next week. You you can gift subscriptions to close reads HQ, which um, gives them access to great content, uh, but also helps us continue making the show. So um, just wanted to, I don't know, just like a little shameless plug for, for that as a possible Christmas gift. Tim, it's great to have you back. Heidi, to be back. thank you. Thank you for being here. Sean, thank you for being here. Merry I'm Christmas, guys. News. It's all about Tim. So. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, well, no, I mean, I'm glad that both of you are here. It's just, you yeah. know. I know. Yeah, me I'll, too. Right back at you. Um, so yeah, Merry Christmas is what I was trying to say. Merry Christmas. Right. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Sean, do you want to say Merry Christmas in a different language too? Joyeux Noel. Tim, you got one? I'm out. Christ is born (laughs) for Tim McIntosh for Heidi White and for Sean Johnson I'm David Kern until next time thanks for listening happy reading and Merry Christmas Christmas